Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Comedian and storyteller Gabe Malika's one-person show, Solo, begins with the declaration that upon turning 30, he realized he had no friends. Wait, was that true? Is it still true today? After taking his show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2022, as well as to Winnipeg, Dublin, and Dallas, Malika's show has settled in for a second limited engagement run at the Soho Playhouse in New York City. Malika joined me over Zoom to talk about what friendship means to him now, whether comedians can have actual friends, the realities of the Edinburgh Fringe, and the power of a critical review. Malika also reflects on how his fandom of musical theater, and Stephen Sondheim specifically, resulted in his sincere correspondence with the late great American composer, and whether the inspiration Mike Birbiglia's shows have given Malika might ever evolve into an actual friendship with him. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. So, Gay Malika, last things first. Congrats on the extension of your Soho Playhouse run of Solo. Thank you not, so much. Not a one-man show about uh, Harrison Ford's Star Wars character. Though we do have some merch that uh, is a knockoff on that, and I'm hoping the show gets big enough where we get sued. That would be very <laughs> exciting. Um, but thank you. Yeah, we're in week. I was just doing some show math because I've been mm-hmm. doing this show so much. And we're in week seven doing it off Broadway with a little interruption to do it in L.A. And before that, it was Edinburgh Fringe, Winnipeg Fringe, 59th, 59th Street. So, like, it's been a lot of this show. And I'm not sick of it because it keeps changing, which is very exciting. So speaking about changing, last things first, my question for you right off the bat is, since you've done this show, Solo, a show about friendship, for at least a year now, um, Mm -hmm. How have your own ideas about friendship changed? That's a really nice question. Um, because it, <laughs> I, and then the reason it's nice is because it's about the way it's, there's one thing to talk about the show and I'm happy to talk about the show, but to talk about my attitude about my own life, I think is kind of even more interesting, which is um, my attitude is definitely shifted. I kind of put a label to this thing that I was struggling with which is this idea of I have these bros in my life and there's certain limitations to the way that we communicate and our default setting of how we communicate. And I've been able to share that with people and other people have come up to me and, and talked in their life about feeling similarly. So one, it's made me feel less alone about just like having the thought um, that, Oh, maybe I'm not as close with the bros as I'd like to be, or as I could be, or as I would ideally like it. And a year later, you know, my mother, um, a big part about the show is like, my mom got sick, my friends didn't know what to do. And so I was like, wait, do I not have any friends? And so first of all, my mom's doing a lot better. But in terms of relating to the friends like in the group, um, we have gotten better. Like people in my friend group have brought up stuff to me that they would not have brought up before, I don't think. Mm. Um, Personal things. Um, they call on the phone every once in a while. I call on the phone more one-on-one. Um, and that's kind of my advice. One of the, it's funny, Sean, there are some people that are like, um, kind of like the friendship influencer types 
where they're like, join a bowling league or like okay, do bingo. Yeah, yeah. And like, I don't have that in me. Like, I'm not here to be like, I'm the, I'm an expert on friendship. I'm kind of just like, here's my life. I made some art about it. Maybe you can relate to it. Maybe not. Maybe we could discuss that. But I don't have, besides like call your bros more often, um, be intentional about the time you spend, maybe bring up a thing that you are worried to bring up because you think they won't want to talk about it. Like those are kind of like basic general tenets about how to be a better friend in your thirties. But like, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy that's like, uh, yeah, if you join a choir, like everything will, will work out. I don't know if that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Although not that many people put on a show that basically challenges all of their acquaintances. Hey, I'd like friends. Yeah, well, you know what? That's tell me, true. Tell me your actual truth instead of just this small talk stuff. Yeah. And then yeah, your acquaintances see your show and they're like, oh, is he talking about me? Am I supposed to be? Well, there, there's friends in my life who like saw like the show description and were like, well, what is this? Like, Gabe, I thought we were friends. And then they and they were a little weird about it. Right. And then they saw it and they were like, oh, okay. Like, you kind of have to see it before anybody that kind of, like, has an opinion on, like, what do you mean you don't have friends, Gabe? Like, people like you. You're out of your damn mind. Like, and then so we, we've actually thought about doing a promotion of people in my life being like, I thought I was Gabe's friend. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's he doing? Like, just, like, different comics, um, mm-hmm. different people from Long Island. Um, just, like, saying that because it's about, it's not that, like, no one, I, I smell, people don't want to be be near me. It's this, like um desire to be closer to people um and like a feeling of loneliness which i think in the internet age is like um people relate to big and small of all genders you know the show's like a little gendered and people are like women come up to and they're like no no no, we have this too and i was like oh that's very exciting right because i am a generation older than you or maybe two i don't know how the generations work anymore but there is something to be said about how it's different when you hit 30, but then it's also different when you hit 40 in mm. terms of like, do you even want to make new friends anymore? Are you just done with that? But then on top of that, because you're a comedian, there's also this, this paradox that we all know about, which is you get on like as a stand-up, you're a solo act. Mm-hmm. So you go through your career as a solo act, but you get up on stage in front in front of a bunch of strangers and you ask them to be your friends for a half hour or an hour. And then you get off stage. And then once again, you're alone. You're in mm-hmm. solitude in the hotel room, on the airplane, <laughs> what have you. Absolutely. Is there something to the idea that not, I know conventional wisdom has has talked about the idea of the sad clown, but is there something to the idea of being a comedian? You don't necessarily have to be sad, but you might have to have some sort of friendship hurdle to start with. Yeah, there's um there's a there's a melan there's a melancholic I think attitude to a lot of comedians. I like see that in 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 other comics. And my sister, who I would say is much more well adjusted than I am, does improv and sketch. And she's like, I love the community of those things. And as a stand up, like I love, I love the solitude. I love that it it lives and dies with just me. Mm-hmm. I love that I can write. I can go to a coffee shop and write and and do that. And for years, it, it really felt. I'll, I'll answer this in two ways. One, I think, is the um, the creative element of being alone. 
And I got to a place during the pandemic where I had done the Edinburgh Fringe once and it didn't go great. No real audiences, zero reviews. I basically wasn't there. For all intents and purposes, I did not go to the 2019 Edinburgh Fringe, but I did go and I had those experiences. And I got back and I remember thinking, oh, I've gotten as far as I can get alone, if that makes sense. Like I can't, I need help. I need to talk with people about structure. I need to write with more people. And once I started doing that, the show started to get a lot better. Mm-hmm. So I would, if you're a comic and you're listening to this, I would say, or anything creative, I would say at a certain point, you have to understand that like you can only get so far alone. And I had gotten there. And so that's when I started to work with the director and creative consultants and just like friend, like calling up people and running jokes and, and all that stuff. Um, in terms of socially, yeah, I mean, um, comics, we kind of, it feels like a lot of us like do stuff later, like socially. Um, like I'm 30 and I'm single. And I feel like if I lived in the Twin Cities even, people would be like, you're 30 and single and like don't have kids and no girlfriend and nothing. Uh, I feel like that'd be more odd. But mm-hmm. there's something about New York where it's like everybody's so singularly focused on what they're doing that that's, um, that's a little bit more okay. And yeah, I think, so there's a creative aspect to it and like the social aspect to it, you know, like we see each other, it's like we're at work. So it feels like it's fun. Oh, we're at a comedy club. We're dicking around. We're going out late for pizza. But I don't know. Those are different maybe sometimes from the people I call at two o'clock in the afternoon with my coffee. Um, that's when I feel like the real bonding happens. When I call, for me, it's like Renan, uh, a couple other comics I'll call. Renan Hirschberg, okay. Yeah, yeah. Was there a point in your life where stand-up comedy wasn't going to be the path, but you maybe Broadway and musical theater? Yeah. Path for you. I, I mean, I know you're a big Sondheim guy. I know you, you, there's still evidence on the Hamilton College website about you publishing <laughs> a complete analysis of Into the Woods. Yes. Why you're the one. The, you're the guy who read that. That's good. Which, and the picture that goes with it, you definitely look like you were into musical theater <laughs> at the time. Why Into the Woods specifically? Yeah. yeah. So, so it wasn't that I honestly, I never had the the follow through to like audition for Broadway. I've never like Mm -hmm. taken a dance class and been like, I'm going to be a Broadway auditionee and do that for a while. It was like, Oh, I'm going to teach music. That was the dream for a long time. And then I went to college and I got this teaching fellowship in Scotland and I moved there. That's where a lot of my show takes place. And when I was living in Scotland, I started to do stand up mostly as a way to pass the time. Like all day long, I could sit and write um and listen to the pete holmes podcast and just like get really like learn about stand-up mm-hmm. um so that was the path for a long time and then it kind of pivoted when i was about 22 23 um but before that my musical theater was like my main creative um force and i i would say mostly because it was so encompassing like you do a musical and it would take a few months and it was social and you'd hang out every day and after school and you'd work on it and then at some point, like I did, I, w- I was in a musical every, at least one musical every year from fifth grade to the time I graduated college. So I've been in ton. sometimes by that, by in high school, sometimes it was two or three musicals a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big part of my life. And then Sondheim, those musicals like spoke to me on like a new level where I was like, oh, these aren't um, guys and dolls is one thing. But like, if you were obs- completely obsessed with guys and dolls, that feels odd. But like a lot of people are completely obsessed with Sondheim, I think because it's so dense, 
Um, it's like Sondheim is like, you know, um, like a Carlin special or a big, for me, a Birbiglia special or a Hassan Minaj special where it feels so dense and careful and, and, um, mold over where sometimes, you, you know, bye bye birdie is some, you know, maybe not even a special, maybe just like some guy you're watching do 40 minutes somewhere. And bye bye birdie is a professional show that people like and people enjoy and they're professional comics who do that version of things. But for me, the thing that really interested in me, interested me and got me to, um, that really inspired me to start writing is something like Sondheim. And so into the woods in high in college, I studied it with a professor over a summer and I don't know how familiar you are with it, but the first act is about wanting things. And the second act is about getting what, or the consequences of getting what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, in the work, Chris Gethard recently told me, I don't know any problem that su- success always creates more problems than it solves, <laughs> which I think is a, uh, that honestly a Sondheimian kind of line, but, um, and so I, I was with this music professor and I was just like, oh, I'd love to study this. And so we came up with an idea of like, oh, how does the music change from the first act to the second act? What changes musically um, after the characters get what they want? And what we discovered when we studied this all summer is that that's not really how it works. How it works is like the first 10 minutes of the musical gives you every melody, every musical idea that he's going to use for the next um, hour and 20 minutes, hour and 40 minutes. And so... Yeah, it was just like a kind of like a summer project um, where they gave us some money to to study stuff. So I, it's funny now that I put together solo shows, I'm so glad I studied structural stuff because a sh- a solo show is kind of like this like symphony kind of, but just instead of music, which I can't manipulate at all, it's words and ideas and jokes, which I'm much better at moving around and understanding how they work. And you know, I'm not a good enough musician to write a symphony, but I can put together a solo show. Like I do, kind of know how to do that. Do you want to get to the point where you have an intermission and then you have a big, a big act one climax? You know what's so funny? And then funny. you take a bow and you go off stage and you go, go get a drink. I'll be back in 20 minutes. That there are Re- some British, there are some British comedians who do have. Yes. So Renan Hirschberg, my buddy, mm-hmm. did a solo show over the pandemic mm-hmm. where the first act was about his growing up and the second act was about his grandfather in Nazi Germany. And he were. No, his great, maybe pr- some, it was like a blood libel kind of like historic family his- history. And he had an intermission and it was so ambitious where I was like, this guy is out of his damn mind. I want to be a part of it. So I produced it. I would like run the board on zoom. Okay. And it's how we met Zinneman, which is really how I met you because I invited him to this. I was like, dude, this is the most ambitious comedy thing happening on zoom during the pandemic. It's a two act show <laughs> about like sexual awakening and also like family jewish history and he was like cool <laughs> you know like, i'm in yeah he was like i will show up on zoom for two hours to watch this like lunatic do stuff and like um so yes to answer your question yeah i i am open to all types of solo shows i kind of have a few ideas for what my next one might be and i got this fellowship in texas that i'm gonna go work out the next one in september oh, nice. so i have an opportunity to do like five nights of this new idea it's gonna be loosely about healthcare. Uh, I think being an artist and needing healthcare and some personal story. I, I, I'm the vague outline. The pitch for them was half Berbiglia, half John Oliver, hmm. and like combine those things in a new way. But I don't know how that'll work. Right. I truly, I'm just like it interests me that I could do that. And so let's see. It's not just doing Berbiglia with an accent. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> British Brubaker. Uh, yeah. But just before before I move off the point of musical theater in Sondheim, you had, you had a correspondence with him. Is that mm-hmm. like- yeah. Um, and that's really, we've really turned the, so as, as the show has gone on, we have really turned the knob on the theater elements of this. Mm-hmm. Um, this will sound name droppy, but Neil Brennan came to the show mm-hmm. and he was like, listen, man, like I was doing it with a microphone. He goes, make theater choices. He's like, you know, theater. And so we've been really leaning into those theater choices. And one of those is like turning up the Sondheim stuff. And going more into detail about that. So the version you saw, I maybe talked about it a little bit. Now it's like a whole section with pictures and graphics and um, jokes. And so, yes, I had a I had a correspondence with Stephen Sondheim in high school. And I've become pretty obsessed with his books. He wrote books about lyric writing, which if you know things about lyrics, you kind of know like there's a little bit like jokes. And they're a little bit like solo show writing because a joke is a bit in a longer show and a song is a bit in a longer show and so he wrote all these rules for writing and so i'm not only obsessed with him as what his output was but the way he did the input the way he kind of put the shows together um and so we used to write letters to each other i probably have six or seven letters from him um the first one is just compliment is just thanking him or he's thanking me for the compliments that i sent him and then when i had that into the woods project he um he would answer my technical questions uh, and he was a little snarky and a little, mm-hmm. um, my favorite is at one point he, um, he broke his wrist and he, he normally would type it out on a typewriter and then hand sign the the letter. And he said, uh, Hey, I'm sorry. I can't hand sign this one. I've hurt my wrist. Just so you know that why this one's not hand signed. And I remember being like, Oh, that's so cool. Like this feels even more valuable than the ones he did sign. That, that never gets old to me hearing about these legends, uh, Stephen Sondheim or George Carlin, the fact that they were so accessible to totally. any to any newcomer. Totally. It makes me feel really bad because people have been reaching out to me um, because they saw the show or, oh, you brought your show to Edinburgh and then it made it off Broadway. Like, can you talk? And I'm like, listen, like I could talk to you on the phone, but like my, it feels like my life is so busy. Mm-hmm. because I'm tr- this is kind of like my like a, I'm having a little bit of a moment I don't know like it hasn't related to monetary success or a million Instagram followers or anything like that but it, it, my life is is changing and I keep thinking about that exact thing Sean where I'm like god Sondheim had time for these people why can't you fucking take an hour phone call with everybody um, and so I'm trying to do that more and more particularly the people who like respond to the show do you know what I mean like mm-hmm. sometimes people every once in a while somebody will message me Who's like, yeah, I haven't seen the show, but like, it looks successful. I'd love to talk to you. And I'm like, you don't even know if you like me. You don't even know if you like my show. Why would you want to talk to me? Like, like, like that kind of pissed me off where I was like, see the show first before you want my advice. Don't like blindly admire success. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh, the other, the other formative experience for you was working at the Double H Ranch. Yeah. And I've got to imagine that's got like that's got to impact you on a cellular level, not just as as a would be performer, because you weren't even really performing yet Mm -hmm. when you when you showed up at this camp. Yeah. But it's got to change, like dealing with those kids versus dealing in future years with audiences. But then also in terms of like relating one human being with another. 
that that has to change you as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I worked at the, at that camp for for kids with illnesses. I worked there from 2013. My last summer full time was 2019. Uh, yeah, 2019. Um, the year I went to that wasn't a full summer, but yeah, six full summers and then a volunteer year. And yeah, it really changed my life. I mean, it's one of the most important things I've ever done. And I did it long into my twenties, which like for a camp counselor is like not, um, you know, you don't meet a ton of 27 year old camp counselors and I was doing it because it was just like, kind of like the most meaningful thing I could think of. If that makes any sense. Like it just seemed, and I would started comedy and I was working at this camp still and I had a teaching job. So I would have off for the summers. Mm-hmm. And there was a part of my, in, in me that was like, just do a bunch of open mics this summer, Gabe. Like, what are you doing? You need to get better at comedy. And then there was another part of me that was way stronger. That was like, Gabe, you can't be a camp counselor forever. You can always go to open mics. And so I just kind of kept doing the most meaningful thing that I could think of. Um, and it was the most, it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. It's the most connected to the universe I've ever felt in my life. Um, it's like almost a spiritual experience. It's the most giving I've ever felt. You just like live every day to like give these kids the best week they can give. And by the end, I was a unit leader. So I was really putting my stamp on the week for the kids. I was deciding which rooms they would live in, which counselors they would spend more time with. Um, the the culture of the cabin, the, the, you know, the kind of jokes we wouldn't make, the kind of jokes we wouldn't make. Like I, it was very, very important to me. And every week there's new volunteers, there's new counselors. So it's a lot of, um, um, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, I've never been more tired in my life than working at these camps. Um, but it did, it did give me an attitude about life, which is like, you can find things that are really important to you, um, that are meaningful and fun. Um, you know, I had a lot of people during those same years that were like working at accounting firms and like not having nearly as much fun as I have. And I, I, it felt very, um, what's the 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 movie dead poet society where it felt very like oh i'm sucking the marrow out of life like this is the most important thing in the world and so when it comes to comedy it was kind of like how could i not talk about this um about the camp and the kids because there's a bunch of kids that are still really important to me kids now they're adults um but i still text them a bunch and they're in my life and i go visit them and what I didn't realize about comedians when I was younger is that what they talk about on stage is usually what the stuff that they're thinking about in their real life, um, like on their own time. And so I was thinking about camp a lot and I was like, well, it's going to have to end up in the show um, because it's one, it's the funniest thing in the world. You get these kids from all over the world with all these different disabilities who are silly and weird and um have tough lives and they just see the world differently. Um, and yeah, I, I, I got, I could talk about it forever. I, I loved working at camp. Um, and when camp people come to the show, that means a lot to me because people come up to me after the show and they might be like, Hey, I have a friendship story. Hey, I have a Sondheim thing. Hey, I liked it. I worked at summer camp. Hey, my brother's has a disability. Like it could be anything. And when it's the camp people, that's a particularly nice thing when they're like, Oh, like, I know about these camps. Like I have a connection to them. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, right, there were camp people at the show that I saw at QED. 
Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I remember exactly. Yeah. That stuff is so important to me and more have come. And every once in a while, somebody who I didn't work at camp with, but who has worked at one of those camps independently. Um, I love that. That makes me so, so happy. Have any of those people or the former, the kids who went to the camp, have they asked, <clears throat> challenged you and gone, I thought I was your friend game. <laughs> you were such a great counselor. Was that all just for show? Yeah. they they. So it's funny. We're adding. It's so funny you say that, Sean. You're like reading my mind. We've added some lines about the campers in the show, Jake and Austin. We've added some lines about like, hey, Austin, like, what do you think of me doing the show? And we've added his reaction into the show. Okay. Because you're exactly right. It is really funny. Like, what do these kids think about me doing this? <laughs> and those are some of the biggest laughs um like 70 minutes in just like giving their perspective on what i do is really fun so you mentioned earlier having done the edinburgh fringe twice mm -hmm. and the first time felt like it almost didn't even count because yeah. no reviews and no audiences how much did that surprise you solely because you had lived there and your actual first time on stage was in that city yeah so i would have thought Oh, well, since you started there, you know what the fringe is. You know what you're in for. Um, and yet I you wish... still had that initial rookie experience of being like... Yeah, I think there's no way to avoid the rookie experience, Sean, if I'm being honest. Like, it, there's just so much to learn. It's so different. Like, I knew the city a little bit, but you mm -hmm. kind of just, like, have to eat it for the most part. And I was also pretty new to comedy when I did it in 2019. I'd only really been doing it in the U.S. for about three years. So I was working out the show, like, at open mics, which is no way to put together a show now i get to work it out on your comedy club or wherever mm -hmm. but back then um or you know book my own shows um so that was a part of it was a disaster and then the other part which is i'm really still learning now is like the pr piece like when i did it the first time i had no pr and one of the reasons i think even if i had great pr it wouldn't have helped because i didn't really know what the show was yet okay it took it takes a couple years to like this is the show this is the thesis and once you have that, then you can kind of market it. But before then, like, God, I could have lived there my whole life and really not known what I was in for. Truly, you really have to get there. Because after a week of shows that first time, I was like, oh, I wish I could start this over because I would know exactly what to do in a way that you don't know until you try it. Right. Was that first year? Was that when I know you said you you uh, spent a month with Colt Cabana? Yes, I lived with him. He was my roommate. Well, so so what was that? element of it like because wasn't he like furiously promoting and yes he's doing an all old that stuff fringe veteran um which is so cool um i'm actually wearing his sweatshirt right now uh -huh. um yeah so i lived with him and a, and a bunch of other american comics mm -hmm. uh, including sam morrison who does the show before mine at soho um and the thing about Colt was his show is it's not like a solo show in the sense that like fleabag is a solo show like he does a, he does a an hour of comedy where they watch bad wrestling and they riff and it's really fun. Um, but his promotion is a little different. His is more like, Oh, my fans are going to come. People who like wrestling are going to come. You could go every night if you wanted. Mm -hmm. um, like he's over there as a professional to try to make money. And I'm here like a, you know, 27 year old, like artist guy trying to like figure out how to do art. Like we were kind of coming at it from different places, but he did have really good advice in terms of like, um, uh, he was really adventurous with what he would see. So I would go with him and see all types of shows, weird British robot comedy, 
Um, we saw good stuff. We saw bad stuff. So he, he his influence on me um, was kind of in the not in the producing of the shows because our shows are different, but in the how to appreciate the fringe and why he goes every year when he does not have to, because he's one of the people that can actually make money doing it. <laughs> so what was your second fringe experience? My like? second fringe was I lived with Anthony DeVito and Casey Balsham. Okay. And they both had their own shows. They both had their own shows, both great shows. Love them both. And, um, you know, I had done the show 14 times in the three weeks before the fringe. So I had worked out a lot of it in that 50 minute version. Now it's closer to 75 minutes, but in the 50 minute version, I really worked it out over the summer. And you know, what's funny is that up until the last weekend of the fringe, I had a better audiences and much better reaction to it. Like people were excited about it, but I didn't have a review until the final Thursday of the fringe with another five shows left. So she saw it on a Thursday. It came out Friday morning and then the Sunday, no one showed up. So it didn't matter in the immediate (laughs) aftermath of the fringe, but that four star (laughs) review in the Scotsman, which is still some of the nicest things anyone's ever written about me. Um, ended up helping me get the Soho Playhouse for two weeks, which turned into three weeks, which turned into an additional six weeks. And so it's really hard to, um, to say all the, like, so people are like, Oh, Gabe, like made it at the fringe. I'm like, if you had seen me there, you would not be like, this guy's killing it. I did the free festival. I did the show basically on a two by four. There's no ushers. There's no, the pre-show music was my iPhone. I would start the show by unplugging the music and hitting record Mm -hmm. on my iPhone um you know like it was not it, it's funny to hear what people say mm-hmm. where somebody was like oh like i can't believe you came from the fringe i'm like came from the fringe is so strong like got one really great review that kind of changed my life um but yeah i mean it's a slog and it's really hard and if i were if i when i was talking to anthony about it like anthony got to tour the country um, or like do the show around the country. He did it at Moon Tower. He could do it at different venues because he has credits. You know, he's like an established, like really strong New York comedian. Same with Casey. You know, Casey's got 50,000 Instagram followers. She can take it places. And Fringe is not right for everyone. Um, and everyone kind of has di- different problems. And my dream with this show, and we need a, a little bit of luck. We need like a little bit, we need a couple more things to come through, which we're hopeful will, that will come through and just in terms of like press or whatever. But my dream is to be able to tour it around the United States so I don't have to keep going back there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, I'd love to be able to do it in Pittsburgh um, and then Boston and then, you know, wherever. Um, the Fringe is like a, God, it's like a gauntlet. I'm sure you've talked to people who've done it before, but it's a really, it's difficult. Oh, yeah, no, I I mean, I only finally went for my first time as a journalist last August, mm-hmm. and I could only afford to stay there for the first week of the French. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I felt like even just like seeing 45 shows in a week, that exhausted me. But also, I realized after the fact, once I got back to New York City, I had barely scratched the surface of what was happening. Mm, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There were still hundreds of of comedy shows like yours that I hadn't gotten around of to course, seeing and writing about. Of course, yeah. No, I mean, it, you could spend your whole life at one of those fringes. And sometimes you see something that'll like change your perspective. And sometimes you see something where it's like, no one should ever see this. This is the biggest <laughs> piece of trash ever. Right. Um, and so it's I gotten really expensive. I apologize for not seeing your show. No, also, it's okay. <laughs> but I'm also comforted to know that one critic 
can change can change your life. That's true. Kate Costa, as, as a I critic, really, that's good to know uh, that, I can, uh, that I still have that power. No, I mean it really did help. You know, it mm-hmm. really, really. Um, and now we have like a whole press packet because people keep coming, and um, and um, you know, we're wait, we're hoping that like the dam can burst a little bit mm-hmm. because my director Greg worked with Hassan Minaj, and he was working with with Hassan pre Daily Show. They were working on Homecoming King, and so by the, the time he got on the Daily Show then like the press really started to roll and he was like, Oh, 10 seconds on good morning America, like really changed, changed his trajectory. So I'm like waiting, not waiting. I have really, I have like an amazing like group of people that I work with on the show. Mm-hmm. And so we need that like one that like dam to break for these next couple weeks. Um, and we think it's about to, but until it does, it's like a little, you know, we've been, I've, when you do the show seven weeks off Broadway, everyone in your life comes <laughs> and then eventually you just need strangers to come. Right. It's like, it's like the, the, the privileged procedures version of the bringer show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and people from high school. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I want to touch on just briefly two things you mentioned earlier in this conversation. Uh, one is uh, Mike Birbiglia, mm-hmm. because I know that, uh, I know that you're a big fan of his and the fact that that um, my colleague and friend Jason Zinneman compared you to him mm-hmm. meant, <laughs> meant something to you. But then you also talked about the idea of realizing that comedians are actually talking about the things on stage that they're thinking about off stage. Mm. Because as a critic, I've sometimes gotten into heated debates with people, especially people who's on stage material is somewhat conservative and they want to say no no that's just a joke oh, and i want to say well but you're saying that because you're thinking about it all the time yeah otherwise you yeah. wouldn't be talking about it so sure <laughs> yeah 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 um yeah i mean i'm probably on on your i'll start there and then we'll finish with rubiglia mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's a real thing like some people um and that's not to say that, like, if you're gruff on stage, you'll be gruff off stage. I think everyone who knows Anthony Jeselnik is like, oh, my God, he's the sweetest man in the world. And, like, he's so good to his openers. And, like, he's not evil. But I do think, like, when he's alone in his room and he reads, a like, a dark headline about a baby dying, I think there's a part of him that's like, the world is chaos, LOL. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I do think there's an element to that. And I do think people should be slightly more responsible for their jokes, you know, um, which is not to say I don't, you know, there's a there's a Holocaust joke in my show. There's an Anne Frank joke. Uh, it's about musical theater, but it is like, you know, I, I just like um, you have I, I try to, you know, when you have a, a, a sweet kind of um, coming of age show, you got to slip in some some dark jokes. Um, but I do think I, I do. I am responsible for that joke. Like if somebody were really upset by it, like. I'd be like, I, I guess I understand. I would take responsibility for it. I wouldn't be like, you're wrong. No one should ever feel that way. Um, and in terms of Birbiglia, yeah, I mean, like when I saw my girlfriend's boyfriend, I it was 2012 or 2013 and my life changed. Like I was like, oh, I want to do that right now. And I was dating somebody at the time who was like, you're so impulsive. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like this, this changed me. I like couldn't believe it. I was like the story of his life and it's so silly and you're with him the whole way. And not only did I, that I love it. I was like, I could do that. Um, that feels like the kind of storyteller I am, the way I tell stories to my friends, um, the way I want to um, talk about my own life. Like it really like messed me up and I hand to God started writing about it 
that day on the bus back to college, like writing my version of that. One of those, the library story in the show is from, is like what I was writing down. Um, and so it really, really changed my life. And structurally my show is most similar to my girlfriend's boyfriend. And that's, I, uh, the, the way I feel about structure is like, you should let the story dictates what the structure is going to be. But my girlfriend's boyfriend, like proved to me that like, I could do it that way. Um, and I, you know, home that and homecoming King I've printed out and marked up and like, I have files and research. Like I, I, I care about these things a lot. Um, and so we're bigly is a huge influence on me and we're doing a talk back on Wednesday with Catherine Burns, the director, the artistic director of the moth. And she was like, Oh yeah, maybe I'll invite Mike. And I was like, you don't understand what that would mean to me. And like, I mean, I I'm in touch with his brother a little bit and like, we've invited him, we've invited, invited his team and it hasn't happened yet. And so I'm hopeful that that might happen because, um, as much as Sondheim is important to me, um, Sondheim didn't write personal one man solo shows and Berbiglia has, and he's kind of like the most important one in my life. And um, his work means a lot to me. Uh, and I'm, I, I consider myself to be a little bit of an expert on his career. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess that would be the the ultimate way to, to end that show about friendship is if you could get Mike to be your friend, right? Yeah. Oh man, that would, that would, that would be kind of, bananas and i did i got invited to his premiere of his broadway show mm -hmm. and so that was why i was like maybe he does know i exist but we've never had a conversation uh, and so i'm hoping that's really what i want it's not that like i'm clout chasing like i just mm -hmm. like i think we would have a really good conversation well gabe i i consider this a really great conversation so oh, thank you thanks, for Sean. for fitting me into your increasingly busy world <laughs> i appreciate it and it's and it's also good to know that as you alluded to earlier you already have the next show on the horizon. So, <laughs> Believe so me, I'm trying to keep, keep my head above after, water on this as, one. <laughs> as opposed to the spinoff movie, there is life after solo. Uh, do you believe in life after solo? Right now I don't, <laughs> um, but I'm glad. And listen, Sean, I really appreciate you having me. Every little piece of press really helps. And we're really hopeful that these last three weeks can be really great. One, so I can just like pay all my people, but two, because I think I really believe in this show and it's gotten so much better and more complicated since you've seen it. And so you're invited anytime. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks. Uh, maybe I'll make it to the same show as Mike. Yeah, that will, that will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. Theme music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>